Who knew a fruitcake business could fund a lavish lifestyle, at least for a trusted employee turned fraudster? Hey, everybody. My name is Michael Thomas. And I'm Drew Howell. We are trial lawyers in Dallas, Texas, who focus on commercial and intellectual property disputes. Over the years, we've litigated and tried many different kinds of cases, but the ones that everybody finds the most interesting are the ones involving swindlers, fraudsters, conmen, and the scams they perpetrated. So we created this podcast, and we're calling it Busted. This podcast is for fans of true crime who love a good scheme and want to know how people have gotten away with it. So what we're going to do on this podcast is break down some financial fraud cases. We're going to talk about how the fraud was perpetrated and how it could have been prevented. And we're going to look at the red flags or indications of fraud that were apparent but might have been missed or overlooked along the way. You might be interested in financial fraud so that you can take steps to protect yourself or your business because you, like us, encounter these types of issues regularly. Or maybe you're just listening because some of these cases actually play out like going to the movies. But no matter why you're listening, we think you'll find it interesting and you'll be drawn in. So we're going to kick off our podcast with a six-part series focusing on the trusted employee. Time and time again, we have seen employees use the trust they've acquired over the years, together with their intimate knowledge of how their employers conduct business, to exploit weaknesses in their employers' practices for their own financial gain. And these particular types of fraudsters are especially dangerous. They build a level of trust with the people around them, and in turn, those people put their guards down. Sometimes it's the person that you trust the most and you suspect the least that's robbing you blind. All right, so let's get to it. We're going to start off our series focusing on a low-level accountant who worked at a bakery in a small town in Texas and over the course of several years was able to steal $16.5 million. So, Drew, aside from the fact that he just stole $16 million, what did you find interesting about this case? Why this case? Well, what I think is most interesting about this case is that we're talking about a bakery, the Collins Street Bakery in Corsicana, Texas, a small company that sold fruitcakes. It's not the type of scenario that you envision someone being able to siphon off $16.5 $16.5 million. It was a fruitcake bakery, but he did it. And what this really shows to me, and I think we'll see this as a consistent theme throughout this first season, is that these types of fraud can happen anywhere, even in places where you don't really expect it. But let's talk a little bit about Sandy Jenkins. Was he a big shot at Con Street Bakery, or how did he get into a situation to conduct his fraud? The short story is no. Sandy Jenkins was an unassuming character. He wasn't native to Corsicana. He moved there after growing up somewhere else. He was a low-level accountant who had taste for the finer things in life, but he was only making $25,000 a year as an accountant. Over the course of several years, he gained the trust and the admiration of his fellow employees. People describe him as the type of employee who you asked him to do something. He did it. He did it quickly and efficiently. And it was correct. And so people trusted him. They liked him. He was eventually promoted to corporate controller for the Collins Street Bakery. But even in the corporate controller position, he was only making 
$50,000 a year, not near enough to fund the lifestyle that he believed he was entitled to. So how did he do it? What did he do to get this money from Collins Street Bakery? Well, you know, when you hear $16.5 million, you anticipate this really complicated scheme, you know, a setup for a blockbuster thriller, but that's, that's just not the case. Jenkins' fraud was really simple. He just wrote checks to himself. What he would do is he would generate an invoice from a legitimate vendor of the bakery, but he would write two checks. He'd write one check to that vendor, and he'd write one check in the same amount to himself. That check to the vendor is what he would put onto the books. So it looked like everything was happening correctly. The books looked good. It looked like the Collins Street Bakery was paying a vendor that it used. What was happening behind the scenes was he was voiding the check to the vendor and taking the check that he had written to himself or to pay his own credit cards. And that's the check that was actually getting cashed. And in order to see this, you would have to reconcile the books against the bank account to see the inconsistency. But nobody else was doing that. It was just him. It was simple. It was not elaborate. That's exactly the very, very basic nature of his fraud. But but how did he get away with that is the question. I mean, such a simple scheme. How do you get away with that? I mean, the truth of the matter is, it doesn't take a lot to get away with these types of schemes if you have that trust. And Jenkins had the level of trust where he could be the one who was both writing the checks and reconciling the bank statements. Accountants and forensic fraud investigators, those people will tell you that there should be a degree of separation with the people who are writing the checks and the ones who are balancing the books and reconciling the bank statements. But Collins Street Bakery, it's a small company. Sometimes small companies don't have the resources that big companies have that can hire a bunch of accounts to do different functions. But even in that scenario, a simple audit would have uncovered this scheme. Having the statements be delivered to the CEO or the owner of the company and the mere threat that the CEO was going to look at the bank statements and reconcile them or even spot check them probably would have either uncovered the scheme or put enough fear into Sandy Jenkins that he might not have been as tempted to do it. But the fact that he knew no one was looking over his shoulder allowed him to get away with it for so long to the tune of $16.5 million. We're talking about how simple his scheme was. The things that we're talking about now that Collins Street Bakery could have put in place to prevent this scheme from occurring, those are simple things too. Having an audit, having a second set of eyes, making sure that your employees know someone else is, is looking over their shoulder and is looking at the same information that they are. Those aren't complicated things. At the end of the day, we have the benefit of hindsight, right? And oftentimes, you will have that benefit when it gets to us. When a case comes to us and we're talking to the executives, the high-level accountants, we too have the benefit of hindsight. We always say, how did you let this happen? How on earth would you let the employee write himself checks and not catch it? And always the answer is the same. We trusted him. He was our guy. He was the one person that we could call if we were in a jam and needed help. We always trusted him. And it's that level of trust. If you put too much trust into people, some people deserve that level of trust. But some people exploit it. And that's why having 
a second set of eyes, having simple checks and balances in place can prevent this type of thing from happening. That's a really good point, Michael. But let's talk about the juicy stuff. What did he do with all of the money? That's what everybody wants to know. Well, he didn't try to hide it. That's for sure. When the district attorney cataloged all the things he spent the money on, he accumulated quite an impressive list. He had over $11 million racked up on a black American Express card. I don't even qualify for a black American Express card. Drew might, but I don't. (laughs) He spent $1.2 million at Neiman Marcus. He had over 500 luxury items, including jewelry, furs, handbags worth three and a half million dollars. He accumulated a wine collection over $50,000, a nearly $60,000 electric piano, and he was really well-traveled. He went on over 200 trips in private planes all over the country, and he had every luxury vehicle you could possibly imagine, from Lexuses to Mercedes-Benz to Bentleys to Porsches. He had it all. And nobody asked, how on earth is he affording it? Why weren't there questions? Why didn't people not ask how he came up with this? Well, it seems pretty obvious, right? But this goes back to the focus of our first season. He wasn't just an employee. He was a trusted employee. He was the trusted employee. People didn't think he was capable of what he did. He was always on top of the books, on top of the payroll. Things were done timely. He was pleasant to work with. People liked him. And maybe people thought he was really investing well. I'm not sure. But the trust that he had built up allowed him to live lavishly out in the open without people really batting an eye. And they never suspected that he was robbing the bakery blind. It still seems impossible, though. $16.5 million from a fruitcake bakery. How did they not notice and put these dots together? I mean, that's a great question. How on earth did the bakery itself not realize it's missing $16.5 million? What you find happens in these cases is people start making excuses, right? You heard it just a second ago with Drew. Drew said, well, maybe he invested his money wisely. Maybe he he did a great job and inherited a bunch of money, or, or, or there must be an explanation for it. And the explanation is never fraud. It's never theft. And the same thing happened at the bakery itself, right? I mean, the bakery itself started making excuses as to why the books, why they weren't making more money. The bakery was expanding into other small towns close to Corsicana, Texas. And they just thought, well, those offshoots, those new restaurants that they're building must not be performing as expected. But the truth of the matter is that nobody really went back and scrutinized the books to see really where the money was going. They kind of helped Sandy along the way. They, they were attributing some of their losses as startup costs for these new locations. And they were justifying the surprising numbers. And at the same time, because these were new startups, they didn't really know what the potential of these new locations was. And so they didn't really have an idea of what type of money should be coming in the door, right? But the truth of the matter is, it's what we said earlier, they could have found out. They could have looked into it. They could have studied it. 
but the way a lot of businesses are run, they, they just, they trust each other. They trust your employees and you should trust your employees, but you shouldn't tempt them as well. You should have checks and balances in place to prevent this kind of fraud. So if you were going to start listing your takeaways, what, what would you do differently, Drew? And how would you prevent this type of fraud from happening to your fruitcake bakery? I think the easiest way to explain the best takeaways from this case is to talk about how he actually got caught. Eventually, Collins Street Bakery was growing and they hired another accountant. That accountant saw checks on Jenkins' desks to Capital One. Capital One was Jenkins' credit card company. He was paying his own credit card bills with company checks. But that new accountant knew that the bakery didn't have any dealings with Capital One, and she asked Sandy Jenkins about the check. And it seems like he kind of panicked. He just said, look, I'll fix it. And that was it. The new accountant was suspicious and did a little bit more digging, and she found over $400,000 in checks written to vendors that the bakery didn't use. It was soon after that that Jenkins was fired and the case was turned over to the Corsicana police, who in turn turned it over to the FBI. And obviously it was too late. Most of the money that had been siphoned from the bakery was gone. But we do see two things here. This new employee didn't trust Jenkins like the people he had worked with for years. She was not blinded by the level of a level of trust that the other employees at the bakery were. And the second thing is she was the second set of eyes that we've been talking about that was missing all along. She looked at these checks and knew there was something wrong with them. And before she was there, you know, Jenkins knew he was the only one. And so if Collins Street Bakery just had another set of eyes, another person going through the books, another person reconciling the books versus the bank accounts, maybe Jenkins would have never even been tempted or um, had the gall to go through with his fraudulent scheme. The interesting thing is the trust and the excuses and all of the touchy-feely things ran out in the end because there's no denying what was actually in the books and records. So, Drew, you and I weren't in the room, but we've been in the room oftentimes where you get the whistleblower. The whistleblower comes and says, hey, I think something's going on here. And the whistleblower is ignored because the whistleblower is new, like this employee was new, doesn't have the level of trust that the Sandy Jenkins has. But this whistleblower did it the right way, right? She investigated. She had all her facts together, had concrete proof of illegitimate invoices, checks being written to accounts that the banks didn't work with, and came to her employer, to someone above Jenkins, and there was no denying what was in the black and white books and records. And so just take a look at the books, have an audit. Those are really the big takeaways. But the biggest takeaway, I think, is this type of scheme can happen anywhere, can happen to anybody, any level of company. And the guys who are sitting next to you I hope that they do not exploit the trust you have put in them, but 
it's better to be safe than sorry. Have somebody there to be that second set of eyes because it can happen anywhere. It can happen in small town Texas to a fruitcake bakery. It can happen to anybody. Trust but verify, right? That's right. Well, that's all we have for today. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to Busted. Next time, we'll be talking about a fraudster whose scheme allowed him to successfully steal $65 million from the popular electronic store, Fry's. We hope that you'll stop by. If you've heard of or know about a financial fraud scheme case that you'd like for us to cover, reach out to us and let us know. Our emails can be found in the podcast bio. And please follow us and subscribe. Thank you for listening to this production from Foley and Lardner, LLP. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and is intended as a general overview. The podcast does not constitute legal advice nor solicitation to provide legal services. It's not meant to convey a legal position of Foley and Lardner, LLP, on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. Any opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the firm, its partners, or its clients. The podcast is not intended to create, and listening to the podcast does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The listener should not act upon this information without seeking counsel from a licensed attorney. Foley makes no representations or warranties of any kind, expressed or implied, as to the content of the podcast or to its accuracy or completeness and accepts no responsibility for an individual who acts or refrains from acting based on information obtained from the podcast. In some jurisdictions, the contents of this podcast may be considered attorney advertising. If applicable, please note that prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.